Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. Okay. Um, well, thank you, Gina. And I want to specifically thank everybody uh, who's been involved in putting this program together. I've actually been working in the ICU myself recently and doing everything but urology. So I really appreciate this lecture series for keeping urologic education going during this crazy time. I know that urology residents sort of have varying exposure to pelvic organ prolapse, which is what I'm speaking about today. And urologists really see a lot of prolapse patients. So it's important to recognize prolapse and know, you know, some about the workup and management options. And the truth is these are really fun cases. And hopefully for the residents today, my talk will spark some interest in prolapse and in the broader field of female urology, or as it's formerly known, female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. I'm sorry, give me one second. My slides are uh, slow to uh, advance. No problem. Okay, so my disclosures are all research funding related for studies dealing with female sexual function, but that's aside from the topic of the talk today. So as a little background, specialization in the field where urology and gynecology meet has been around for years. The urologist called it female urology, the gynecologist called it urogynecology, and in 2011, the two specialties came together and decided to create a board-certified subspecialty, which they named Female Pelvic Medicine and Reconstructive Surgery. The fellowship is two years for urologists or three years for gynecologists, and then there's a subspecialty board exam. The nice thing about this field is that the urologists and gynecologists bring different backgrounds and skill sets, and so it really results in a unique approach to patient care. So pelvic organ prolapse. Prolapse is the herniation of pelvic organs through the vaginal wall. And I'm going to be talking today about the epidemiology and terminology, the presentation and evaluation, and then moving on to management options, both conservative and surgical. Although prolapse can affect women of all ages, it more commonly occurs in older women, and the prevalence of prolapse increases with age until a peak of about 5% in women in their 60s. Some degree of prolapse is actually present in almost half of women on exam, but only 3% of patients report symptoms. There's limited data to suggest that prolapse progresses until menopause, and then at that point, there's sort of low rates of progression or regression. And the number of pro women with prolapse is expected to increase by 46% to 4.9 million by the year 2050. So let's talk about the normal anatomy. Normal pelvic support is provided by the levator ani muscles, and the connective tissue attachments of the vagina to the sidewalls in the pelvis. Dr. John Delancey described three levels of support in the vagina, which you can see here. Level one is the cardinal uterosacral ligament complex, which provides apical attachment of the uterus and the vaginal vault to the sacrum. So that's the top. Level two is the middle, and that's the arcus tendineus fascia pelvis and the fascia overlying the levator ani muscles, which provides support to the middle of the vagina. And then there's the bottom, which is level three, and that's the urogenital diaphragm and the perineal body, which provides support to the lower part of the vagina. When there's normal pelvic support, the vagina actually lies horizontally on top of the levator ani muscles. 
when the levator-ani muscles can be damaged, which occurs with childbirth, they become more vertical in orientation, and then the vaginal hiatus widens, and that shifts support to the connective tissue attachments. The etiology of pelvic organ prolapse is multifactorial. Some of the risk factors include advancing age, ethnicity or race, uh, specifically Hispanic and white, a family history of prolapse, or interestingly, connective tissue disorders like Ehlers-Danlos, an elevated body mass index, parity, and vaginal delivery with an increased risk for operative vaginal delivery, and increased intra-abdominal pressure such as chronic cough, constipation, and repeated heavy lifting. Although many patients with prolapse are asymptomatic, prolapse of the pelvic organs can cause a sensation of pelvic pressure or bulging through the vaginal opening, and it might be associated with urinary incontinence, voiding dysfunction, fecal incontinence, incomplete defecation, and even sexual dysfunction. Bladder outlet obstruction can occur in an advanced prolapse caused by urethral kinking, and hydronephrosis can occur as well, either at the level of the urethra or at the level of the ureters. The mechanism by which prolapse causes hydronephrosis is different if the uterus is in place versus if the patient is post-hysterectomy. When the uterus is in situ, it's thought that the general hiatus entraps the ureters against the fundus of the uterus. For patients who've had a hysterectomy and they no longer have their uterus, then it's thought that the cardinal ligaments actually kink the ureters as the apex descends. So this here is a CT scan of a patient of mine who has bilateral hydronephrosis with the prolapse. And so I'm going to scroll through it so you can take a look and follow the ureters down. You can see the full extent of her prolapse here. And the truth is you don't need a CT scan at all. I just thought this was a uh, nice way to illustrate the bilateral hydronephrosis. But you can really diagnose prolapse with exam alone. So let's start with the basic anatomy. Every vagina has a front, a back, and a top. So now that we got that out of the way, let's talk about the physiology. Each of these compartments can prolapse or herniate into the vagina, leading to a cystocele, which is a bladder prolapse into the vagina, a rectocele, which is prolapse of the rectum into the vagina, or an apical prolapse, which is prolapse of the uterus or the bowel if the patient's had a hysterectomy. So here you can see an example of an apical prolapse with the uterus in situ. This is an extreme example where with Valsalva, the vagina inverts completely. This shows a photo of the same patient and the same type of prolapse. Complete prolapse like this is also called procedentia. Here you can see an apical prolapse after hysterectomy. This is called vaginal vault prolapse with enterocele because it's usually small bowel that's herniating out through the vagina. Here you can see a photo of the same prolapse, and I show this to highlight the erosion which can occur in these patients from friction on the atrophic vaginal wall. A very rare complication of erosion of the vaginal wall in these cases would be evisceration of the bowel through the vagina, which is shown here. One of the nice things about the field of female urology is that there are very few emergencies, but this is one of them. The next form of prolapse I wanna mention is a cystocele which is herniation of the bladder into the vagina. Patients with a predominant anterior prolapse can present with incomplete bladder emptying, which puts them at risk for recurrent urinary tract infections. Another complication of the cystocele or anterior prolapse is kinking of the ureters, causing hydronephrosis, which I mentioned earlier. And a review paper that I worked on found that this ranges from 3 to 30% if you include all stages of prolapse. 
So this photo here shows a clinical office exam of a cystocele. And I wanna describe how this exam is done. The exam is done while the patient performs the Valsalva to see the full extent of the prolapse. You can also see that only one blade of the speculum or a split speculum is used in order to reduce the rectocele while examining the cystocele to see the full extent of the cystocele. Here you can see a posterior prolapse or a rectocele. Patients with a rectocele may present with constipation due to stool trapping. Basically what happens is that the stool ends up getting trapped in an outpouching of the rectum into the vaginal space. And so the patients will actually sometimes report that they need to splint, which is they put a finger in the vagina to straighten out the anatomy, pushing the rectum back into the anatomic position to allow the stool to pass. I want to point out that this is different than rectal prolapse, which is a prolapse of the rectal mucosa through the anus, which is usually treated by the colorectal surgery team. Here you can see a rectocele on a split speculum exam. The split speculum is used to reduce the cystocele, so you can see the full extent of the rectocele here. Here the rectum comes to the hymen, which we use as a landmark. The second photo shows that the examiner is doing a rectal exam with the patient with the rectocele. And so you can see that the examiner's finger is able to demonstrate that the rectal wall comes to the hymen. This shows the pelvic organ prolapse quantification system, or the POPQ. And I wanted to go through this because I know a lot of the residents see this on the in-service exam and find it totally confusing, but it's really pretty simple. The pelvic organ prolapse quantification system is used to measure the degree of prolapse in the different compartments of the vagina. These points are measured with the patient doing a Valsalva maneuver. Points AA and AP are three centimeters proximal to or above the hymenal ring anteriorly and posteriorly. And that's a fixed point. So exactly where that point is on the vaginal epithelium is where that point will always be. So it can only go from minus three, which would be perfect support, to plus three, which is that the prolapse is extending at least three centimeters beyond the hymen. Points BA and BP are defined as the lowest points of the prolapse. So that could be not far down within the vaginal canal if somebody doesn't have significant prolapse, or it could be out to plus six if a patient has a prolapse which is extending six centimeters beyond the hymenal opening. Point C is the cervix. And then point D, as you can see in this photo, is the posterior cul-de-sac or the pouch of Douglas. In women who have had a hysterectomy, we omit point D and we just call point C the vaginal cuff. There are three other measurements that are taken. The vaginal length is measured at rest, and that's the only measurement that's actually done at rest during this exam. Everything else is done with Valsalva. The genital hiatus is the measurement from the middle of the urethral meatus to the posterior hymenal ring. And then the perineal body goes from the posterior aspect of the genital hiatus to the mid-anal opening. And there's a great tool which I want to encourage all the residents to use, and that's from the American Urogynecological Association, or AUGS. Um, and that lets you put in different numbers to see what it looks like. So, you know, you could say, well, if the AA is minus one and the AP is plus two, you know, and the C is this, what does it look like? And it's a good thing to practice getting comfortable with the measurement system. And I actually use it in my office all the time because I want to show patients exactly what their prolapse looks like. So how do we treat these problems? This image depicts the treatment of prolapse in the Middle Ages with balls of yarn and stones being used as pessaries. And we still do this today, just not with yarn. 
This image shows pessaries. A pessary is a space-occupying device placed in the vagina to support the pelvic organs. There are different shapes and sizes used for different types of prolapse. The gelhorn, which is in the middle on the top, is used for a more severe prolapse, whereas I'll use the ring, which is in the middle on the bottom, uh, for patients with a less severe prolapse. I want to also direct your attention to the incontinence ring on the bottom right. And this is used for patients with concomitant stress urinary incontinence. And the knob that you see there basically compresses the urethra against the posterior aspect of the pubic symphysis to prevent urine leakage with increased intra-abdominal pressures. Here you can see the pessary in place and how it supports the pelvic organs. It's a good option for elderly patients who are not surgical candidates, but it's also a good option for young women who are interested in future pregnancies because I don't typically recommend a definitive prolapse repair until somebody is done with childbearing. Another option for patients who don't want surgery is expectant management. I always tell my patients, if it doesn't bother you, it doesn't bother me. Gilchrist and his colleagues followed women with prolapse who declined intervention, either with pessary or surgery, and elected observation instead. At a mean follow-up of 16 months, they found that 1.8% had no change, 19% had progression, and 3% had regression. 63% of the patients elected to continue observation, and 38% elected for intervention. Interestingly, there was actually no difference in the prolapse severity between those who elected observation versus those who elected intervention. Another option which works well for patients with minimal prolapse pelvic floor physical therapy. There are specialized physical therapists that do additional training in the pelvic floor who can work with patients on either strengthening, which is considered to be up training, or relaxing, considered to be down training of the pelvic floor musculature. And pelvic floor physical therapy works well for sort of a less advanced prolapse, a stage one or a stage two, and it does require a motivated patient. Just for a moment, I want to mention staging, and uh, stage two is generally considered to be um, within the hymen. There are two different staging systems. There's the Baden-Walker system versus the POP-Q system, where the Baden-Walker system is used more commonly in Europe, uh, and the POP-Q system is used here. And they differ slightly, but in general, a stage two prolapse is uh, to the hymen, or it can even extend to a centimeter beyond the hymen, whereas a stage three and a stage four are more advanced than that, extending further beyond the hymen. So let's move on to surgery. Before we get into the surgical options, I wanted to discuss what is surgical success. Pelvic organ prolapse is a multidimensional phenomenon, and successive treatment is actually very difficult to define. Historically, most studies looked only at anatomic outcomes but they didn't necessarily correlate with patient symptoms or the need for repeat surgery. This is prolapse, it's not cancer. It's a quality of life problem. And so the definition of surgical success really has to take into account the patient perspective. The Health and Floor Disorders Network, which is a multi-institutional research group, proposed that any definition of success after prolapse surgery should include an absence of vaginal bulge symptoms, which has the strongest relationship with patient assessment of treatment success, as well as anatomic criteria, which actually has the weakest correlation with patient perception of outcome, and also the absence of retreatment. 
They also recommended using the hymen as a threshold for anatomic success, as patients are often not bothered by a prolapse, which does not extend beyond the hymen. And I'll discuss definitions of success and failure a little bit later in the talk, but I wanted to use this as a jumping off point to discuss my pre-surgical counseling. Before surgery, you always want to consider, is the patient symptomatic? Do you see prolapse on exam? Because some patients will complain of pelvic pressure, but they don't have much prolapse. And then you have to think that maybe it's something else, like a pelvic floor muscle spasm. Does the patient have apical descent? I always try to offer conservative therapy first. And then lastly, you have to consider, is the patient a surgical candidate? Most important is discussing with the patient, what are their goals? We need to take into account quality of life, satisfaction, and the degree of bother. As a surgeon, I wanna fix the anatomical changes, but the patient's most considered about, concerned about relieving symptoms. And in doing all this, we need to make sure we're not causing de novo symptoms and we're minimizing the risk of complications. So let's discuss types of surgery. Surgery can either be obliterative, which is to close the vaginal canal, or reconstructive, which allows patients to continue to have the ability to engage in penetrative intercourse. This here shows a schematic for a colpocleasis. A colpocleasis is a vaginal closure procedure that's done by removing the vaginal epithelium and then imbricating the front of the vagina to the back. With each successive imbricating stitch, the uterus gets pushed back into the abdominal cavity and ultimately the vaginal epithelium can be closed over it. The technique is modified slightly if the patient has had a hysterectomy. Moving on to reconstruction, let's go back to the anatomy. Every vagina has a front, a back, and a top. And so if we're doing reconstruction, we need to address the support defects in each of these areas. Anterior prolapse or a cystocele can be fixed transvaginally or laparoscopically. A transvaginal native tissue, cystocele or anterior repair, involves dissecting off the vaginal epithelium, plicating the underlying fibromuscular layer, and reapproximating the epithelium after trimming any excess. A graft may be placed in addition to support the repair, and I'm going to discuss that a little bit more later. A rectocele or posterior repair is done in a very similar fashion. The epithelium is dissected off, the fibromuscular layer is plicated, and then the epithelium closed over this. The difference is, I'll often do a perineorophy at the same time to rebuild the perineum, which is often injured in these patients at the time of childbirth. In patients with fecal incontinence due to an obstetric injury to the anal sphincter, an overlapping anal sphincteroplasty can be done at the time of rectocele repair. The truth is I rarely do sphincteroplasties though because they have a high complication rate and I find that many of my patients with fecal incontinence may have urinary urgency as well and I can treat them both by implanting a sacral neuromodulation device. Especially now that there's an MRI compatible device available, it really widens this option so that it's a great option for a lot more patients. So we discussed the front and the back. Let's move on to the top. The uterus sits at the top of the vagina and repair of this apical compartment can be done with or without a hysterectomy. Hysterectomy is often recommended though because all of the repairs have more durable results when the uterus is removed. So what are our options? A sacral colpexy is the most durable repair it's a mesh augmentative repair done via an abdominal, laparoscopic, or robotic approach. This is not transvaginal mesh, and I'll discuss that more later. 
Sacral colpopexies have great success up to 95% at five years based on the extended arm of the CARE trial. But let's get back to that definition of success. So the CARE trial was the colpopexy and urinary reduction efforts trial, and it aimed to describe the anatomic and symptomatic outcomes up to seven years after abdominal sacral colpopexy with their extended arm. They also aim to determine whether success uh, rates were affected by concomitant anti-incontinent surgery, and they were doing a birch urethropexy. The trial enrolled women with symptomatic prolapse without stress incontinence and randomized them to an abdominal sacral colpopexy with the birch procedure or an abdominal sacral colpopexy alone. The main outcome measures were symptomatic failure, and they defined that as prolapse retreatment or reporting of a bulge, and then anatomic failure defined as prolapse retreatment or a measured pelvic organ prolapse quantification or POPQ demonstrating descent to the vaginal apex below the upper third of the vagina or an anterior or posterior vaginal wall prolapse beyond the hymen. And they also looked at stress urinary incontinence outcomes, which I'm not gonna focus on. In terms of the results, by year five, about a third of the patients had symptomatic failure defined as retreatment or reported bulge. But despite this, 95% did not have retreatment. So this could suggest that women were less bothered by bulge after surgery, or maybe it's just that as they age, they were less interested in undergoing surgery for their prolapse again. The other thing I wanted to mention is the mesh erosion probability. They found that the estimated probability was 10.5% at seven years. Furthermore, 16.7% had additional surgery related to pelvic floor disorders. So 11 of those did have surgery for recurrent prolapse, 14 had surgery for stress incontinence, and then 11 of them had mesh complications. So let's get back to the options again. Let's say you have a patient who says to you, I'm concerned about a 10.5% probability of mesh erosion. What are my non-mesh options? So the second two repairs here I listed are native tissue or non-mesh repairs, which is basically um, to say that, you know, you just use sutures and I typically use all dissolvable sutures. So the patient is left with nothing more than the uh, scarring and the remodeling that occurs with that. A uterosacral ligament suspension is an intraperitoneal procedure that can be done transvaginally or laparoscopically, whereas a sacrospinous ligament fixation is an extraperitoneal procedure, and that's done only transvaginally. The optimal trial came out with five-year data and showed fairly modest success for both of these procedures, actually. The good news is, though, if a patient fails a native tissue repair, it doesn't preclude a later sacral copopexy. So let's discuss that e-optimal trial. That's the extended arm of the optimal study comparing uterosacral ligament suspension and sacrospinous ligament fixation. They also compared usual care versus a perioperative behavioral therapy and pelvic floor muscle training approach. Their main outcomes were a primary surgical outcome of time to surgical failure defined as apical descent greater than one third of the total vaginal length or the anterior or posterior wall beyond the hymen or retreatment for prolapse. And then they also looked at bothersome bulge symptoms. By five years, the estimated surgical failure rate was 61.5% in the urosacral group and 70.3% in the sacrospinous group. Despite this, the prolapse symptom scores remained improved. 
So this is a cartoon here of a sacral culpopexy. And you can see that a sacral culpopexy involves a Y-shaped piece of mesh, which attaches the anterior and posterior walls up to the sacrum. A sacral culpopexy can be combined with a mesh rectopexy in a patient with comorbid rectal prolapse. I know a lot of the residents will say, well, isn't this a great option for everybody? This has the best success. Why not do it for all patients? But the truth is, I don't use a sacral culpopexy for all patients. I use it for a patient who's maybe failed a native tissue repair or who has significant prolapse and continues to do heavy lifting, like a patient of mine who worked at Home Depot. I do also have some patients who just really want a durable repair and they're willing to accept the risk of mesh exposure. Even if a patient does develop mesh exposure, it can often be treated conservatively with a vaginal estrogen cream, which helps the vaginal wall heal over the area of exposure. So I have this video here, which I wanted to show you about the steps of a sacral culpopexy. Here you can see that the, this is the vaginal vault being lifted and the posterior dissection is being performed. This is usually done with a vaginal stent uh, used to extend the vagina so that the uh, dissection can be done with good traction on the tissue. And then this here shows the anterior dissection, dissecting in the space between the vagina and the bladder. The next step is to fix the mesh to the vaginal wall. And here you can see that Gore-Tex is being used. I typically don't use Gore-Tex. I'll typically use something absorbable. I use PDS. And the reason for that is that I have seen Gore-Tex knots um, erode through the vaginal wall and I've had to remove them at a later point for patients who've had surgery years prior. So once the mesh is affixed and made sure to be kind of laid out widely, then the mesh is affixed up to the sacrum. And this I do use Gore-Tex sutures for. Finally, the last step is to retroperitonealize the mesh so that there's lower risk of mesh complications with bowel. So moving on to the next surgery we described, which is the uterosacral ligament suspension. This photo here shows the anatomy of the uterosacral ligaments. These extend from the uterus to the sacrum, and I've highlighted them with the blue arrows. These can be plicated, bringing the cervix or the vaginal cuff cephalad within the abdomen. One of the common risks of this surgery is actually pinking of the ureters, which I highlighted in yellow from the plication stitches. Here the two actually look pretty far apart, but from a vaginal approach, they're actually quite close together. I usually will use a, I'm sorry, going back to the uterosacral ligament suspension, I'll usually use that for a patient who wants to have a hysterectomy at the time of the prolapse repair surgery, and also a patient who prefers a non-mesh approach. I usually approach this vaginally, but I've approached it laparoscopically as well. So moving on to the sacrospinous ligament fixation. 
This is a cartoon showing the sacrospinous ligament and the capio device, which is a suture passer used to place stitches into the sacrospinous ligament by palpation. This procedure is usually done in a blind fashion, although with enough dissection, the ligament can be visualized. The fixation is usually done unilaterally to avoid compression of the rectum, which could occur if a bilateral fixation were performed. It does deviate the vagina to the side, but studies have shown that patients are typically not bothered. I'll usually use a sacrospinous ligament fixation in a patient who's had a prior hysterectomy. The reason for this is that you don't know exactly what's going on intraperitoneally and if there's any bowel stuck to the vaginal cuff scar. And so this allows me to stay entirely extraperitoneal and minimize complications. So this is the part of the talk that you've all been waiting for, transvaginal mesh. If you watch TV or ride the subway or even use the internet, it's hard to avoid ads like these from lawyers looking for patients who want to sue for complications of transvaginal mesh. So what's it all about? Mesh has been used by general surgeons for years. The concept of mesh use for pelvic organ prolapse began in the 1990s when large studies came out showing the risk of reoperation with native tissue repairs alone would be as high as 30 to 50%. In order to reduce the risk of relapse, people in the field began using mesh implants to augment the repairs. Mesh augmented surgery was actively promoted by industry with marketing of the procedure as easy to learn and do for general gynecologists and urologists who are not otherwise performing pelvic organ prolapse repairs. The truth is the industry push was sort of ahead of the science and randomized trials that came out later comparing the use of mesh to native tissue repair in prolapse surgery have now shown better anatomic but similar functional outcomes in the anterior compartment with no benefit in the posterior compartment. And Mesh can be associated with greater complications, such as vaginal erosion, dyspareunia, chronic pain, and even vesicovaginal fistula. So why is there such a problem with mesh in the vaginal wall when mesh is used for abdominal hernias all the time without major complications? The truth is there's not a difference in the mesh. Mesh for prolapse was designed using the same principles as mesh for hernia repair. It's polypropylene, monofilament, lightweight, large pore, and high porosity. The issue is that the vagina is not the abdominal wall. To start with, the abdominal wall has a strong fascial layer keeping the organs in, and then this is covered by subcutaneous tissue and skin. The vagina, in contrast, has a fiber muscular layer, which the textbooks will call pubocervical fascia, but it's a poor excuse for fascia even when it's totally healthy, and it's even worse when it's attenuated, as in pelvic organ prolapse. Covering this fiber muscular layer is the vaginal epithelium, which in postmenopausal women becomes very atrophic. One of the reasons transvaginal mesh prop placement is problematic is that it's often not placed deep enough, and so it can erode through the atrophic vaginal epithelium. The other big difference is the loading forces. Abdominal hernia mesh takes a load, which is radially distributed when the patient coughs. In contrast, mesh for prolapse takes a load, which is concentrated in one direction, which is downwards with gravity. This deforms the pores, as you can see in the image here. The pores become smaller, which is bad for biocompatibility, and it also makes the mesh stiffer. And at first you might think, well, stiff mesh sounds good because you need to support the load of the pelvic organs. But the issue with stiff mesh is that it actually causes a phenomenon known as stress shielding. 
stress shielding occurs when two objects are physically connected. When the patient coughs, the stiffer material, the mesh, holds the majority of the load, and the less stiff material, the soft tissue, gets shielded from the load that it used to normally experience. This actually causes a maladaptive remodeling with loss of collagen, elastin, and skeletal smooth muscle. So to illustrate this, I'm using the anatomy of bodybuilders, the analogy of bodybuilders. You bring in the bodybuilder here on the left, and he's in good shape and he can hold a certain amount of weight, but then you say, let me help you out by bringing in the bodybuilder here on the right. And over time, the bodybuilder on the left gets weaker because he's used to the bodybuilder on the right holding the majority of the load. So stress shielding, in conjunction with all the other issues I mentioned, ended up resulting in a greater number of complications with transvaginal mesh placement, which led to the FDA putting out the first public health notification in 2008, and then a second in 2011, stating that complications from transvaginal mesh were not rare. This very much altered patient perceptions and led to major changes in practice. Most recently, on April 16th of 2019, about a year ago, the FDA ordered all manufacturers of surgical mesh intended for transvaginal repair of prolapse to stop selling and distributing their products immediately. The issues with transvaginal mesh are things like wound complications. Wound complications can either be infectious or non-infectious. Non-infectious complications could involve a seroma or a opening of the wound at the location of the mesh. There's also the issue of vaginal mesh exposure, which could initially be treated conservatively with vaginal estrogen, as I mentioned, but could also require explantation of the mesh. I also want to discuss pelvic pain. Pelvic pain after mesh placement is a very difficult issue to deal with. The pain is not necessarily related to the mesh, and so when a patient comes in with pelvic pain after mesh placement, you have to assess whether that pain is in fact due to the mesh placement. Is there any point tenderness over the mesh, or could it be due to, for example, the pelvic floor muscle spasm that has developed since surgery? Conservative options include trigger point injections, pelvic floor physical therapy, and medications which affect the body's central processing of pain. If all of these fail, there is the option of removing the mesh, but it's important to counsel the patients that removing the mesh may not resolve the pelvic pain. There are also some patients who request that mesh be removed not because of any issue, um, not that they're having pain or infections or something like that, but because they think that mesh is bad, they heard that it might improve the value of their medical legal claim. Um, they are concerned that they have a foreign body in their body and they didn't realize that this would be permanent, you know, despite appropriate counseling. In these situations, you wanna make sure that you discuss with the patient that mesh is not dangerous in and of itself. And in a patient without complications, there's actually greater risk to removing the mesh, which could cause scarring than to leaving the mesh in place. And then the last complication I wanted to mention is mesh erosion into the viscera. I've had to deal with mesh erosion into the bladder. And this, if it's a small area of erosion, can actually be managed transurethrally with laser uh, removal of any overlying stone and then actually laser excision or using a cystoscopic scissor to remove the mesh. 
If this fails, the patients will often need to go on to a more definitive explantation surgery. So let's talk about transvaginally placed grafts. This is a cartoon of a transvaginally placed graft. Although I had placed some transvaginal mesh in training, it was not a large part of my practice. And so when the FDA stopped the use of transvaginal mesh, I stopped performing augmented vaginal repairs. But there are other urologists who use biologic grafts to augment transvaginal repairs. Some use it routinely and others save it for select patients. For example, a patient who's failed a prior native tissue repair or who has a history of multiple prior abdominal surgeries and they'd like to stay out of the peritoneum but needs a durable repair. It's easy to assume that if one biologic graft demonstrates success or failure for that matter in treating prolapse, then this should apply to all biologic grafts. But there are important differences between grafts. Grafts differ in their origin, their source, dermis, fascia, pericardium, small intestinal submucosa. They differ in their processing, in cross-linking, and in sterilization. And each of these variables can influence the behavior of the graft post-implantation. There are basically three outcomes for a biologic graft after surgical implantation, absorption, encapsulation, and remodeling. Absorption occurs if the host tissue does not recognize the graft as remodelable. This basically causes the body to simply form a scar tissue in response to the insertion of the graft. Encapsulation occurs when the material cannot be absorbed. And this occurs with cross-linking, which basically changes the absorption profile of the biologic graft into more of like a synthetic material. The body then attempts to wall off the material by forming a fibrous capsule around it. And so that puts the patient at risk for a seroma and then ultimately wound separation. Then there's remodeling, which is what everybody's hoping for. In remodeling, the host tissue repopulates the graft with blood vessels, fibroblast infiltration, and then subsequent collagen deposition. This creates a new tissue layer that lasts after the graft resorbs. So in summary, prolapse repair can be done via a transvaginal or an abdominal laparoscopic or robotic approach. It can be done with hysterectomy or without, and it can be done with mesh or graft augmentation or using native tissue alone. I'd like to end with this painting, which was actually made by my husband's friends who are local artists in recognition of the hard work by those on the front lines. It's on display at Maimonides now, and it'll be rotating through the other hospitals in New York in the coming weeks. We're all in this together, and I look forward to coming out on the other side of it and getting back to being a full-time urologist.